We're continuing a, a journey through, a traveling through the, the Gospel of Matthew, Advent to Easter, Christmas to Easter, two huge events in, in uh, Christian history, world history. God int- interrupts and God invades human history, comes in humanity, the incarnation, Advent. And then, and then not only that, but, but he dies Jesus dies for our sins, and then he's raised from the dead, ascends into heaven, the resurrection. So we have Advent and Easter, the two things that make the incarnation that God in humanity and the crucifixion, resurrection, that he dies for us and rises again. Those are things that are essential if Christianity is real, if our faith is true, if there's anything to this, okay? And so that's what we're working through. The, the Gospel of Matthew begins with this coming Advent, and it ends with his death and resurrection. So between those two holidays, we are in the book of Matthew. That means we have to hurry. Okay, We've only got a certain amount of time because, like it or not, ready or not, Easter is coming. And our goal is to use Matthew to get ready. Okay, so... Uh, we had two chapters last week. We've got two chapters before us again today. And if a couple of weeks ago I said that chapters 12 and 13 were the pivotal point in the Gospel of Matthew. Here it became clear that the king of the kingdom was being rejected by those that he came to. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And that was clear. That, that, that culminated in Matthew chapter 12. And so in Matthew chapter 13, he gives his disciples, those who have received him, those who have believed, he gives his disciples these parables of the kingdom. Well, the kingdom is not going to come right now as you had expected. It's going to be a little different. What is that different going to look like? It's going to start small and it's going to grow big. It's going to be working through the world. It's, yet it's a great treasure. It's worth every sacrifice. So there's this, this, this handful of, of different images that Jesus gives in order to communicate truths about the kingdom that were a little beyond what the disciples themselves and the rest of the nation were expecting. Now, we come to Matthew chapter 16, and there's a couple of pivotal events in, in 16 and 17, or actually what I called high water events. You had the a turning, so to speak, and this is now, there's a, a high water uh, point of, uh, that, that you and I can identify with as followers of Jesus. There's a critical question asked, and an answer given, and an answer demonstrated. But first of all, before we get there, I want to just start in the, um, at the beginning of chapter 16. So Matthew chapter 16, I think we're on about page, was it 822? Maybe the start of the chapter is 821, something like that. Is that right? Yeah, 822. So chapter might start on, on the page just before that. But in the midst of this um, unfavorable climate, Jesus is getting pushed back from the leadership. And so in the midst of that, he takes his disciples apart for a while. Well, first of all, in the beginning of chapter 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. They're not asking this in order because they really want, they want to see to believe. That's not why they're asking. They asked in order to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now that's intriguing. Because these are the same guys that said back in chapter 12, we don't believe his miracles are from heaven. We believe, actually, his miracles are from hell. We don't believe he's doing this by the power of the Spirit of God. We believe he's doing these things by the power of Satan. 
the, instead of the Christ, we believe he's the Antichrist. That's what they're saying, and that's huge. That's why that's a pivotal point in the book. Now, these, now they come back, and they're trying to test him in some way. They're trying to trap him in some way. They say, we want to see a sign from heaven. Now, what has just happened? He feeds 5,000 out of five loaves and two fishes. He heals all kinds of whoever is brought to him. He, he, um, he calms the storm. He walks on water. He, he um, feeds 4,000 at one time with just, again, a few loaves and fishes. And there's piles of food left over. And they want to see a sign from heaven. He says to them, this is his answer, when it's evening you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. It's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And he'd explained that once before. He says, I'm not going to give you a sign. You should, you should know it. What, what's all this about the weather? What's he talking about? You can look around and you can read the signs around you. You know what the weather's going to be like by what you see in front of you, but you don't recognize your own God. Why is it an evil and adulterous generation that asks for a sign? Because they've seen They've seen the character of God, and they've seen the power of God flowing out of him. If they knew their God, they would know that he's who they've been seeing. Nobody would have to tell them, behold your God, because they have seen him. They have experienced it up close and personal. But seeing is not necessarily believing. Another miracle isn't going to make the difference for them. In the midst of this, however, Jesus, in verse 13, he's come into the district of Caesarea Philippi. In that environment, Jesus takes his disciples aside. Caesarea Philippi is kind of in the foothills on the way to Mount Hermon. So it's up a little bit from the Sea of Galilee. It's a little bit out in the woods. And yet, this place that Jesus takes his disciples to is, is a spiritual retreat of sorts. It's a spiritual Disneyland. All right, so Jesus takes his disciples away from all the hubbub that's around, the, around Galilee and, and, and Capernaum and so forth, and, and he takes them away to a spiritual retreat, a spiritual Disneyland. Ladies, have you signed up for the, for the women's retreat at the end of the month? Okay, hopefully it's not going to be quite the same kind of spiritual Disneyland as the environment that Jesus is in here. Because there at Caesarea Philippi, it's named Caesarea after Caesar, and Herod the Great has just built another temple there, but there are plenty of temples there. There's a collection. There's a temple to Augustus. Thank you, King Herod. There's a a temple to Zeus. There's a temple to Pan. There's a temple to the Greek goddess Nemesis, the goddess of retribution. You'll get what's coming to you if Nemesis is around. There There is a temple of the dancing goats. And they have their own special sacred... There is something for everybody here at Caesarea Philippi. It's a spiritual Disneyland. It is about as multiculturally, spiritually as you can get. Well, except for the truth. There's not a lot of that there. And yet now he stands there. And it's in that place, it's in that environment that Jesus poses this question. 
at Caesarea Philippi, in this spiritual Disneyland, in this multicultural spirituality, he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said to him, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? That's an important question, isn't it? That's the critical question. Who do you believe Jesus to be? Who do you believe Jesus to be? I want to pose two questions today. I want to pose the question, what do you believe about Jesus, first of all? And secondly, well, if you believe that, what difference does believing that make? What do you believe about Jesus, and what difference does it make? Do we just believe that, but it doesn't make any difference? Or does believing that, if that is true, believing that, embracing that, stepping into that changes everything? That's what I want us to consider today. Because I said it could change things. It could change everything. Let's pray. Father, would you open your word to us? Would you show us Jesus this morning? Would you remind us of who he is, remind us of what we believe? Or, Father, open our eyes maybe for the very first time. Lord, press this question into us. What do I really believe about Jesus? And then from there, Lord, what would you have us to do with it? What difference should that make if this is what we believe? So, Father, open our hearts Lord, open our minds, help us to see, help us to understand, but Father, open our hearts in terms of our willingness, our willingness to believe and our willingness to step into what we believe. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. But who do you say that I am, Jesus says. There's a lot of answers floating around. A lot of people have a lot of ideas. You want to strike up an interesting conversation, but you could start with this. Who do, who do you think Jesus is? You know, rather than telling people, you know, Jesus is, well, who do you believe Jesus is? And you'll get a lot of varying answers that often will be something less than he is. In fact, even among Christians, we can be a little confused about who Jesus is. Peter is still confused at the end of the chapter. Peter will be confused for a while. I, I find great comfort in that because I'm often confused myself. I, often my Jesus is a little smaller than he ought to be. There's a great um, a theology book coming out. It's called, uh, it, it, it's called Superheroes Can't Save You. It's not out yet. Uh, I'll probably be out uh, end of this year, I think. It'll be published. Superheroes Can't Save You. And the idea behind it is brilliant. The idea behind it is the historical errors concerning who Jesus is. The historical errors or heresies that have popped up within the church about who Jesus is, they parallel people's ideas of superheroes. For instance, Superman. Superman is a superman. He's not completely human. He's more than human. He's different than human. He's not really human. Some people think that Jesus, because he's the son of God, he's not really human. He's not quite as really human as you and I. And that's heresy. That idea has what was raised a couple hundred years into the church as the, as the church was born, and it was rejected. That cannot be true because if Jesus isn't really human, his death doesn't count for real humans. So, so there's a, a lot of uh, another one, the Hulk. That, that um, the Hulk, I, f I forget the, the guy's name. Is it Peter Bannon? Bruce, Bruce Banner. Oh, see, you know this stuff. You know your superheroes. Maybe I was just leading you. Yeah. 
Bruce, when Bruce is there, it's Bruce. And you don't want the Hulk to show up. Because if the Hulk shows up, it's different. What is that? There's a modalism going on there. Sometimes Jesus is human, and another time Jesus is God or the Hulk. And you don't want God to show up. You want the nice, gentle, tender Jesus, right? And so there's all these... Errors that are out there. So now I got you intrigued, right? Now, superheroes can't save you. It's not merely a book about superheroes. It's a, it's a wonderful approach to who is Jesus really because of it addresses and confronts these lesser versions of Jesus that we find portrayed for us in our ideas of superheroes. Okay, that was a complete aside. It's not even in my notes. You got that completely for free. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that Jesus is? Who do you... Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter jumped up, and Peter is quick. He, he, he's the first one to speak, and sometimes it's a problem, but this time he nails it. He says, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah, the hoped-for son of David, who would come and deliver us. You are the Christ. So far, so good. And not only that, but you are the son of the living God. The living God. When you hear that term living God, think about false gods. Think about dead gods. Think about idols. And they are in idolatry central when Peter says that. You are the son, the unique one, the only one, the only begotten son. You are the son of the only God. The only real God, the true and living God. Peter nails it. Despite the definition, the, the redefinition of Jesus all around, we believe that he is the promised one from God. We believe that he's the unique son. He's the only son of the only real God. He is God's son come in humanity. Peter's confession is huge. You know, it's the same thing that we, we make this, this, this public confession of Jesus like Peter does. Peter's called out before, before everybody else. Who do you say that I am? And Peter jumps up and says, you are. And that's what we do. See, belief is not merely a private thing. Belief is not just uh, my beliefs are personal, my beliefs are private. No, we proclaim what we believe. We do it in baptism. That started from the first century. That started in A.D. 33. That started when they asked Peter, well, what should we do? We, we are the ones who rejected Jesus. You just told us that. We, we did not believe that he was who he said that he was, and we rejected him. We handed him over to be crucified. What should we do? And he said, you should repent of that. You should, you should turn concerning your lack of belief, your failure to believe in Jesus, and you should believe in him and be baptized. The baptism was the public confession that we are with him. We are with him in his death for us, and we are with him in his resurrection that we are with him. That's what baptism is. So it's a public confession. So it's, it's one of those things that sometimes I believe for a while, but I'm not, I'm not sure about the whole baptism thing. You know, it's kind of a public spectacle. Faith should be. Maybe it's one of the reasons it's, it's a little scary, it's a little difficult, because if you believe, you've got to take a step. You've got to put a foot literally in the water, huh? You, 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 you need to make that confession before others. Invite others to share it with you, or let's go down to the river, let's do it in a public park, but make that public confession where you say, I am with him. I am in Christ. Identify myself with Jesus. Okay, so Peter makes his confession. 
And then, that's, that's, that confession of Peter, we believe that. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and we believe more than that. We believe what then Jesus says in response to Peter's confession. Blessed are you, Simon, Simon Barjona, the son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, what's going on here? We can get all wrapped up about the role that Peter plays in the church and how some denominations or some churches have made a big deal about Peter because, well, Peter's put in charge here. Let's focus instead on what does Jesus say he's going to do. I am going to build my church. We believe that Jesus is building his church. Peter isn't building the church. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. Even when the culture is against it, and they're experiencing that, even when the, 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 the leaders of the nation have rejected him, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to call an assembly out of this people and other people. That word church, ecclesia, it means a called out to him assembly. They're called out from the, from the people as a whole, called out from the nation as a whole. It's a new word. He doesn't use the normal word for assembly synagogue. That would be confusing. I'm going to build my old synagogue. No. He's building an assembly, a, a gathering of people that is called out from the unbelieving world to himself. That's what he's going to do. I am building my church. No matter what the tide of the culture is, I am building my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell, the entrance to death. I don't take that, that, that phrase to mean that the demonic opposition coming out of hell can't stop it. I take it that not even death itself will stop Jesus' church from being built. Not Jesus' death, he will rise again. Not Peter's death, because those who, who, who believe in me, Jesus says, will never die. Not your death and mine. God will use us, like Peter, to build his church, and not even death itself can stop it. In fact, through history, the blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church. Where the church is squeezed the hardest, it seems to flourish spiritually more deeply the best. And so, not even death can stop what God is going to do. It's beyond this present life. You say it's harder for the church to grow today. It's harder for Christians to witness today because the culture is turned, the culture is shifting, the, the, the mind of the masses are against us, and it's easier just to lay low and not, not make waves. It's hard for the church to be built today. I say, actually, it's kind of exciting. We're not in this cultural Christianity that's kind of like the medieval period where everybody thinks they're Christians and maybe nobody really is. We are, we are something maybe getting back a little closer to the first century. When, yeah, there was a lot of opposition to the church. But, man, they turned the world upside down. Look what the power of the gospel and the risen Christ did in the midst of that opposition and antagonism. That doesn't scare me. What scares me far more than opposition from the world here or wherever whether it's troubles and opposition that the wardens are going to face if, face in the Muslim world, whether it's, it's opposition that our friends who are laboring and training pastors and evangelizing in India, the opposition they're going to face, and they do. What, what concerns me all the more is when there is no opposition and everything is comfortable and lukewarm. 
and we have nothing that, we, that causes us to strive and we just sit around and watch TV. That concerns me much more because God is doing something here in the midst, in the present, and we can easily be missing it. I will build my church. And he says, I give to you the keys of the kingdom. What is that all about? Is that just to Peter? Or is that Peter and the, and the disciples, the apostles? What, what, what is this binding and loosing? The things, that you have, the things that you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. It's a perfect participle, so have been. The things that you, if you look in your, uh, depending on the translation that you have, you, you might read, the things that you bind on earth will be in the future also bound in heaven, or it might read, either in your translation or in the margin, it might read the things that you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And because of the per- perfect participle, I won't go to the grammar, but I think that's a better reading. And it, and, it, and it suggests this, that the disciples are operating under kingdom authority, even though the kingdom is not established yet. But they are operating as heaven's ambassadors on earth. They have the power then to declare sins forgiven. Why? Because in Jesus' name, heaven has forgiven them. Who is Peter to forgive sins? Who is Paul to forgive sins? Who is Bob to forgive sins? But you may come to me and talk about something. And we may pray together. And I may be able to look you in the eye and say, my brother, your sins are forgiven in Jesus. Did I forgive them? No. But I have heaven's authority to declare that. You, as a believer in Jesus, have heaven's authority to declare in the gospel the forgiveness of another's sins. And sometimes we need to hear that from one another because we don't believe it from ourselves. But that binding and loosing, he's using a rabbinical term here, a term that the rabbis use to say what's allowable, what's permissible, and what's not. And what the disciples are going to speak on heaven's authority is going to be authoritative for the church. What they have to say about the gospel is going to be authoritative. It came from Jesus himself. So they are going to be Christ's ambassadors. Jesus is building his church. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I believe that Jesus is building his church and nothing can stop it, and he's doing it through us. Isn't that exciting? That's what we believe. That's what we believe is happening. Jesus isn't doing crazy, miraculous things out there all on his own and sending angels and and causing trees and rocks to talk. He's causing you and I to talk. That's how he's getting his word out. That's how he's building his church. He's doing it. It can't be stopped. And he's doing it through us. It's good that we point out that he's, he's doing it and it can't be stopped because we get to the through us and we think, oh my goodness, this is hopeless. But because it's through him and it can't be stopped, he can even use us. Cheer up. It's not hanging on you and I. He is going to do it and he is going to use us. That's encouraging. That gives hope. What difference does believing that make? If, if building the church and Peter's part in building the church flows out of Peter's confession of you are the Christ, that building flows out of believing, what difference does believing make? Make? Believing leads us into something. First of all, if you believe that Jesus is, then do what Jesus says. That makes sense? If you believe that Jesus is, then 
trust him for what he says. If he is the son of God, then what he says is God's, what he says is true. What he says is trustworthy. What he says can be relied upon. Look down at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. He must be killed. He must be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This should never happen to you. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? If you boil down Peter's response, Peter says, No, Lord. How can you do that? How can you say no if he's Lord? If you believe that he is, then do what he says. If we believe that he is, then we trust what he says. He says the Son of Man must. He says he, he must be killed and he must be raised. And Peter says no. And Jesus' response is, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, Peter had that trouble at times. Do you think we might? Is it possible that we, you and I, could sometimes see things from our own perspective rather than God's? Jesus laid out, I'm going to have to be killed and rise. And Peter says, no, 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 I don't want that to happen to you. We, we just now are seeing who you are. We don't want to lose you. Peter's got his own agenda. And Peter's limitations, he can't see what has to be, and yet it has to be. Without Jesus' death and resurrection, there is no gospel. If Jesus doesn't die to carry our sins away, why does he die? Because he carries our sin on him. He is perfect. He is sinless. He need not die. He dies because our sin is put onto him. Well, now that, now that he has our sin, he is separated from God in death. How can Jesus ever rise? If he has our sin, how can Jesus ever rise? The rest of the resurrection demonstrates this, that his death has been enough, that the sin is put away. The sin is gone. Otherwise, Jesus cannot be raised from the dead. Jesus cannot ascend. Jesus cannot sit down at the right hand of the Father on high if he still bears that sin, but he doesn't because that sin has been put away. You see, without his death and without his resurrection, there is no good news. There is no hope for you and I concerning our guilt. I don't have to convince you of your guilt. You know about it. And it hinges on that Jesus must be killed, he must die, and he must be raised. So Peter's wrong. Jesus is right. We need to accept what Jesus said. You know, often we might think of, of Jesus almost as the victim of his times. They didn't understand who he was, and so they killed him. Oh, it's much, deep, it's much bigger than that. He knew exactly who he was, and that's why he died. He died for us. You see, often we, we, we don't see clearly the depths of our own depravity. Probably the most overlooked doctrine in the evangelical church today is the doctrine of human depravity. How badly broken we really are. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. What man can know it? And so, I'm going to have to trust God's word over my own head. All right? Let God's word confront you and adjust to it. Do not, as you read the Bible, find ways to, to, to jump around and make it adjust to you. Well, it can't mean that, so it must mean something else. 
There are times you're going to read that, 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 that that's got to be cultural. That can't be true for us today. It's still true. God hasn't moved. We're the ones that have moved. The world has moved in some striking ways. God's word is still true. His ways are the ways things must be. We trust what Jesus has said. Get thee behind me, Satan. There's a spiritual battle at play, and it's true for believers. We're going to spend some time in Ephesians fleshing that out in a couple of months. But there is a spiritual battle, and the enemy is working to to destroy or at least to hinder those who do believe in Jesus. Spiritual opposition is not merely for those who don't know Jesus. If you're a Christian, you're safe from it. Oh, no. You will be tempted every day. And yet... There's a, there's a clear confrontation here as well. Remember the spiritual authority. That we, are, we have been given by Jesus an authority of the kingdom. That we can respond to the enemy. You have no claim over me. You cannot hold that guilt over my head. You cannot lead me like a, like a ring in my nose into that temptation. Because I am able to now in Jesus say no to that sin. That is not me. I am a new creature in Jesus and I will walk with him. That's a new authority and position. We ourselves can rebuke Satan. This is the 500th year of the Reformation. One of the unique and kind of fun things about Martin Luther is he used to have conversations with the devil all the time. And I'm not going to try to flesh all of that out, exactly what that means, but you know when you're being tempted and you can reply, you can do a Martin Luther there. You can, you can tell the devil to go away. Say, I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to follow in the sin that you are enticing me with because I am a new creature in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for my sin and my sinfulness. And now I am free in him, in his resurrection, to walk in newness of life. You can rebuke the enemy just like Jesus does here. Get behind me, Satan. You're in my way. And I am going with Jesus to build his church. And nothing can stop him. If you believe in Jesus, then trust what he says. Do what he says. Follow what he says. Follow Jesus and self-deny. If you're going to follow Jesus, where's it going to go? It's going to go towards the cross. That's odd in our culture, I know. I said this was going to be counterculture. I said it was going to be different, and it is. It has to be. If we're going to follow Jesus, Jesus is going to the cross. And those who follow him, he says, if anyone is going to come after me, if you're going to follow me, if you want to be one of my disciples, if you want to be one who's going to learn from me, and in learning from me, you're going to learn of me, you're going to learn more deeply who I am, you're going to experience that. You're going to learn that experientially, believing you're going to see it, believing you're going to begin to experience it. Remember the story of the kitten. The kitten didn't begin to receive and experience the affection of the family until the, until the kitten believed, trusted that that family was not going to hurt her. Well, that's just a kitten. But you and I, when we step into, by faith, trusting Jesus, and it costs us something, and we, we give up something, we sacrifice, we experience just a, a bit, just a nibbling around the edges. We experience just a touch of what it was that he sacrificed for us. 
He came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for others. We step into then serving. How can I give my life for the sake of others? How can I serve in some way others rather than myself? And in that serving, I'm not advancing my agenda. I'm serving. I'm giving something of myself for the benefit of others. I was explaining in our, in our foundations class, for those that are newer to Brush Prairie, I was explaining this morning that one of our values as a church is we want to be worshiping together. We want to be growing together in, in, in smaller connection groups where we're growing together with other growing believers and we want to be serving together. Not because we got stuff to get done. We want to be serving together because every one of us needs a place, needs an opportunity, whether it's in here or from here, but there needs to be an opportunity where I have the chance to give of myself for the sake of others in ways that don't, don't necessarily benefit me, but it's for others. And that giving of myself away is stepping into the footsteps of Jesus. And I will know something more of him there. Following Jesus in self-denial and sacrifice. To follow him requires sacrifice, not ambition. Because he's not on the ambition path. He is on the sacrifice track. He will lay down his life. And if we are going to follow him, we are going to deny ourselves. It says, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and, and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? You can't serve in order, well, I owe God this. That's not the point. The Son of Man is coming, going to come with his angels. I truly I say to you, in fact, there's going to be some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You're going to see his glory. Some of them, three of them, are going to see his glory in just a moment, but we're not quite there yet. Following Jesus in self-denial is our fulfillment. It's what we were given life for. It's what we were made for. The one who, who loses his life for my sake will find it. The one who seeks to gain his own life is going to miss is going to lose, is going to never really lay hold of that which he was really made for and created for. And what we have been given new life in Christ for is to know him. And that happens as we will lose our lives. As we give our lives away for the sake of others, for the sake of the kingdom, we will experience that's what I was made for. I've said before that this life is God's workshop for eternity. This life and our experience in it are the opportunities by which God will shape and mold us for our fellowship with him, our capacity. Let me put it this way. The, we, we are building spiritual muscles in this life. So if you're wondering what Paul meant when he said, well, bodily exercise profits a little. I'm not saying bodily exercise is a waste of time, but there's other exercise. Spiritual exercise is even more important. And in spiritual exercise, like physical exercise, you're building capacity. So you are building spiritual muscles, spiritual capacity, through which you will know, comprehend, and serve God in his character, bearing fruit of godliness through all eternity. We're building, we're training for that. We're being grown up for that in this life, even in the weakness of this mortality. That's what we were made for. That's what we were given new life in Christ for. Let's step into it. Lord, what would you have me to do? 
Lord, where would you have me to go? How would you have me to give myself away? And I still, it could be in a particular role of serving. It could be uh, from here reaching out in some aspect into the, into the community and places among people that God has sprinkled us among. But how will I give myself away for the cause of Christ? That's the point. This life is not about what can I build up and do for me? What will I achieve? What will I make of my life for myself? It's how will I give my life away for the sake of the gospel? That's where spiritual muscle is built. That's where we are shaped into his likeness, a likeness that will last into eternity. Follow Jesus in self-denial and sacrifice. What difference does it make? If I believe he is, I will do what he says. I will follow him in self-denial and sacrifice. I will take up that cross and follow him. I will keep my eyes on his glory. Because sacrifice is a hard road, isn't it? There are many exits on the sacrificial highway. There are many off-ramps. And some of them look enticing. Some of them have a Wendy's. Some of them have a Dairy Queen and milkshakes on a hot day. You want to pull off. Oh, let's just, just, just a short exit. You know, we won't stay long. Some of you have taken road trips with somebody that says, nope, next stop is three hours. And you know what that's like. That's suffering, right? That's hardship. Hardship for the road trip. Well, one of the ways that Jesus strengthens those who were traveling this sacrificial highway with him is a glimpse of his glory. Remember who he is. Look at chapter 17. He said, some of you will, 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 will not die before you see the Son of Man coming in his glory. You're going you're gonna to get a glimpse. They didn't know exactly what that meant. Then, a couple of days later, they begin to realize it. And Peter will say later, we saw his glory there on the mountain. We, we have it all the more confirmed. We saw the future in advance. That's how Peter interprets Matthew chapter 17. In chapter, in chapter 17, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. They led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is so good that we're here because of something to do. If you wish, we'll make three tents, three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he's still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, were terrified, and Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise up, have no fear. And when they lift up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Where is Moses? He's gone. Where is Elijah? He's gone. Only Jesus is left. Peter's mistake was the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and, and he's going to make three tents. He's going to make three tabernacles, once for each of them as if they all are on equal ground. When the job of Moses and the prophets... It's the same job that Peter has. It's the same job that you and I have. The job of Moses and the prophets was to point to him. It's all about him. God, who in, at various times and in various ways spoke to our fathers by the prophets, the writer of Hebrews says, has in these last days spoken to us in son. The fullest revelation there could be. God himself, the word of God, the very expression of God. He who has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. That's not Moses. 
That's not Elijah. They pointed to him. They witnessed about him. They told about him. They described him. They foreshadowed him. But he's here. Hear him. They get a glimpse of his glory on the mountain. And Peter says in 1 Peter, or rather in 2 Peter, that keeps them going. Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's an important verse. It tells us that Jesus himself endures the cross. How? In the confident expectation that not only is he going to be killed, but he is going to be raised from the dead. He is going to be glorified. The Father is going to exalt him and give to him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus had that hope in him on the way to the cross. He endures for the joy set before him, he endures the cross. And I don't think that joy was merely his own exaltation. I think that joy was the joy of bringing many sons to glory that Hebrews also mentioned. But I gave you that verse, which is Hebrew chapter 12 and verse 2, because chapter 12 of Hebrews verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we are so are surrounded by so great a cloud or group of witnesses. That's all of those in Hebrews chapter 11, all of those in Hebrews 11 who have witnessed, testified to the faithfulness of God. He says, surrounded by all of these examples, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so easily clings to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We look to the glorified Jesus, the sitting at the right hand of God, Jesus. We look to the Jesus that Peter also saw. And that's how we will keep going. That's how we will endure. That's how we will give ourselves away because it's nothing in comparison to the glory that awaits Even the troubles, the hardship, the sufferings of this present life, Paul says, are not worthy to be compared. They cannot be counted against the glory which shall be revealed in us. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. It will be. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? Is it that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God? then what difference is that going to make? What difference does that make? What does that compel you then to do with this short life, with this little bit of energy? I'm getting older. I know what I mean when I say this little bit of energy. What am I going to do? How am I going to expend it? It used to be that I could do many things. You know, I used to be like Garrett here, and I used to have all kinds of energy. I could do all kinds of stuff. I could go everywhere and do everything. I can't do that anymore. i got to make choices. I'm going to have to lay some things aside. I'm going to have to give some things up because some things are simply better. And some things, my brother, matter more. Don't they? What do you believe? And what are we going to do with it?